1: Greetings to everyone around the world, and welcome to another edition of Veritas, Alternative Media for Discerning Minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again, and if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Lucy Wyatt, author of the book, Approaching Chaos. With an ancient archetype save the 21st century civilization? Lucy seems to think so. Many ancient civilizations lived in peace and harmony with this planet, while also enjoying technological advances that we can't even replicate today. Lucy Wyatt will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a member. Just go to our website, verytestshow.com. Click on the subscribe button And instantly enjoy all of our material. Over 130 shows. Veritas TV. And the very exclusive Manticore Forum. Where people around the world and I interact. And post news and important information. We don't have the time to discuss here. Don't wait any longer. For only $7.95 per month. You can listen in CD audio quality. And take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And if you don't have the time for downloading all our shows, or you have a slow internet connection, purchase our futuristic 8GB metal case USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2, including bonus material. Go to the very desk store. And don't forget get your MMS right from us. If you haven't heard about MMS, listen to my interview with Jim Humble. By the way, I recently received a letter from Jim Humble, in which he has received information that a three-letter agency is planning to literally remove him I'm not going to get into the details here you can read the entire letter on our forum but I will read an excerpt Jim says quote I have gotten letters from time to time that shows that there are many people who do know the score and the score is that there are people in this world who are beginning to lose money because of MMS That, of course, is pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, clinics, doctors, and a host of related industries. They aren't too worried about a few million dollars of losses now, but they are looking at the huge loss that will soon be happening when MMS becomes popular. We all know that, quote, the love of money is one of the main reasons for the world's problems. Of course, it is a little late for them to do anything now with more than 8 million people having used MMS, and with thousands of websites, and with thousands of MMS success stories posted all over the world. Remember, for every cancer patient that they convince that MMS doesn't work, they make $800,000 for the cancer industry. A similar story exists for malaria, the worst disease of mankind, and many other diseases. To find out more about MMS, just click on the MMS link of our website. And if you want a very test subscription but cannot afford one, go to the free subscription link of our website and find out how you can get one. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. Could an ancient archetype save the 21st century civilization? There can be little doubt that our 21st century civilization is facing economic, ecological, and spiritual meltdown. Tonight, we will take a highly original and relevant look at just what we can do to reverse this very real and potentially disastrous situation. The information is out there. We can learn a tremendous amount that has been disregarded for far too long. Get ready for a brave and compelling overview of ancient history. If you are ready to have your long accepted thinking on the origins of civilization challenged, then join us as we uncover many illuminating insights into how we can help ourselves today. Lucy Wyatt is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
0: Linda Moulton Howe, and you're listening to Veritas.
1: After studying international relations and Italian at the university, Lucy Wyatt went on to work for the National Economic Development Office, then in commercial design and marketing, within Sir Terence Conran's empire, and followed this by editing a business magazine for a firm of City of London stockbrokers. Lucy Wyatt comes from an illustrious family of mathematicians, architects, and writers, and she has a lifelong fascination for the ancient past and the political and economic realities of the bigger picture. She lives with her family on an eco-farm in Suffolk, United Kingdom, where she puts much of what she has learned from her research into practice. Approaching Chaos is her first book and will be the main focus of tonight's interview. And directly from Suffolk, United Kingdom. I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Lucy Wyatt. Hello, Lucy, and welcome to Veritas. How are you?
0: Hi, Mel. I'm good.
1: We have a little bit of a delay, so bear with us. Sometimes technology works in this way, but we're thousands of miles uh, in the distance, but hopefully we'll we'll make this work. Lucy, I found interesting that uh, you really wanted to explore the origins of alternative medicine like homeopathy, than anything to do with civilization. Give us some background of yourself and what motivated you to write this book, Approaching Chaos?
0: Well, it it started around the time when uh, my children were very, very small and I had been using alternative medicine, uh, particularly with with them. But I also had friends who are uh, conventional, mainstream uh, doctors, general practitioners, we call them in the UK, medics, who were very rude and sceptical about alternative medicine and dismissed it as unscientific. And So I felt that if I could go back to the origins I might discover why that was and also maybe be able to uh, dispute with them and prove that, that they were perhaps not quite correct in dismissing it as unscientific. And at the time I thought I'd just go back to the ancient Greeks and start start with them and I felt the Egyptians were far too mysterious and exotic, and I ignored them. But as I dug away, um, a bigger picture started to emerge, and I realized I was going to have to get in much deeper, and there was there was much more to to discover. So that's really what set set me off on the journey, and that was about 12 years ago now.
1: There's so much information, Lucy, in history that has been hidden from us, and the portions that may not be hidden sure. may have been perhaps mythologized. What have you found as it relates to the origins of humankind?
0: I think we've been told the wrong story. I think we've been told a story that uh, civilization cities, I'm talking about cities when I talk about civilization, that they grew out of a farming experiment and for what I could see looking at the record going back as far as the end of the ice age, more than 12,000 years ago, that story doesn't stack up. It doesn't quite work. But we've kind of fooled ourselves into thinking that everything happens by happen chance happenstance and it's all happy coincidence and I don't think that's necessarily what the record shows and I was very concerned to take the established record and reinterpret it and I didn't invent any any information that's in my in my book it's all all there in the archaeological record, but how you interpret it that's that's the big question, and that's really what i i felt drawn to to challenge you know by looking at things like the DNA, by looking at things like how crops came about, how agriculture started, and that that's really where I went
1: and that's a very interesting concept uh, when I was reading your book, and by the way, folks, it, it is really fascinating. You have to read it more than once to absorb it all. The concept of farming you discussed that 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 man went from hunter gatherer to all of a sudden becoming a farmer. Did cities start because of farming, or was it the other way around? Farming started because of cities.
0: Well, there are really two stages to farming, and it's quite important to bear that distinction in mind. There's a much older phase uh, stage, which happens around the time of the end of the Ice Age. And And at that time, they were penning up wild animals and keeping them for meat and hides. But these were not domesticated animals. These were wild, and they stayed wild for thousands of years. Crops, they started to change a little bit um, later on. Um, The crops, they started to change around about 9,500 BC. Um, But animals didn't actually become the domesticated variants until around 5,000 BC. And in my view, that particular critical change with animals, domesticated animals, coincided with the arrival of cities. And I really firmly believe that they that those changes happened because of the cities and not the other way around. I don't, I don't believe it's possible to have that kind of changes we, we had through evolution. I think they had to have been deliberate and I think it was deliberate genetic modification in order to produce um, the crops at 9,500 and the animals at 5,000.
1: Who do you think caused the DNA manipulation?
0: Well, I think that if you go back to um, the crop change, that's the first one to look at because that happens in very poor um, environments, very poor conditions for growing crops, i.e. in um, the foothills of mountains. And, um, And it has been commented on by archaeologists what a strange thing it is to find And I also need to explain to your listeners the difference between a wild crop and a domestic crop is the difference of a single gene. And this gene is to do with um, convenience, It's to do with the fact that a wild um, seed head, when it's ripe, it breaks and scatters on the wind. Uh, But the, the domesticated version waits to be picked. It's not, a, it's not a difference of taste, it's huh. a difference of convenience. And that is the single difference between domesticated and wild. So it's kind of rather important. And the other thing to mention is is exactly what I said earlier about where it happens in these foothills. Now, if you were going to have a farming experiment, you would choose better quality land. You would choose nice, watered, fertile valleys and, and that kind of thing. So in my view, the people who made those changes had very good reasons uh, to 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 grow a certain kind of crop up in those difficult places, and I think it's because they were up to other activities in those mountainous regions, and that's why they decided to to alter the crops to help feed them on these operations that were they were on
1: you know a quick parenthesis since you talk about domestication of animals in your book, I think of the zebra which has never been domesticated and isn't yeah, it uh exactly. no more than stri- a strip horse why the domestication of animals exactly. was, was it to help with the farming
0: well i think that that what happened with the animals is is around 5000 um bc you get something what the archaeologists call the secondary products revolution and what that means is all of a sudden you can take milk from a cow and make a secondary product i.e butter and cheese you can also take wool from a sheep. Before that point, sheep had coats like deer. They were eaten by humans, but they weren't used in the way that we use sheep. And it's after that point that, that they actually modified coats sufficiently to, to make them useful. You could spin them and, and create felt and, and things like that. So the, these are very, very important changes. And I think that they didn't change by coincidence. I mean, who, who would have the benefit of hindsight to know what would make a good cow? just from looking them at a waterhole. Also, the other point to bear in mind, that if you want c- to create change in terms of breeding, you have to breed something with something different to create some, a different outcome. Right. Otherwise, you just get more of the same. I mean, after all, we still have wolves in zoos. They haven't, they haven't changed evolutionarily into dogs, right. you know, even though they've been in zoos for hundreds of years. Do you know what I mean?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the, those fascinating things that we continue to ponder. You know, I, I, I'm going to read as we go yeah, along certain exactly. certain parts of your book that are very interesting, certain snippets. Here, we, we, you say, we risk falling for the political temptation to circumscribe our freedom And our ability to determine our own futures. The apparatus of government now has unprecedented possibilities of surveillance and data collection, rendering us more more vulnerable than ever to arbitrary government. And folks, you're listening, you may be thinking, wait a minute, Mel, do all of a sudden change subject? But there's a connection between what you're talking about in ancient (laughs) civilizations and this. Tell us
0: more. Wow, yes, <laughs> I'd I sort of almost forgotten I've said that. um, well, I mean, one of the things I do write about is is the whole concept of free of free will. And I do think it's very very important that people are aware that they have choices and that they need to exercise those choices, and they shouldn't just get led down a certain path. You can't put your trust totally in in governance; they don't make right decisions on your behalf. um, you have to make decisions for for yourself, so I think that we do, we do have to be aware of the power of government and we do have to try and uh, circ- circumvent it because I think at the end, end of the day, if there were to be some enormous global catastrophe and people would look to governments, I don't think they'd make the right decisions. So I do think we've got to try and clip their wings and cut back their powers as much as we can while we can because otherwise they will be rounding up those that actually would be helpful and would be useful if we're not careful, because they're so mistrustful of people with what they think of as strange ideas.
1: And I think the more people awake, the more concerned they become. But in a way, I don't know why I found a connection with a a recent book that somebody you know, Graham Hancock wrote, Entangled, which is fiction, yours is not. But he talks about Somebody from the past yeah. or somebody from the present. And I see this in reality with your book, but, but real, nonfiction. Uh, you say in this part, even in the highly sophisticated urban West, we are still surrounded by ignorance, poverty, violence, and prejudice, coexisting in uh, urban spaces that can depress the spirit more than race it. It's unbelievable that after so many centuries, oh. we, are, we have not been able to evolve to the next step. Why do you think?
0: Exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the, what I'm trying to explode here, what I'm trying to challenge, is our our arrogance in believing that we are the most highly developed, that we are the where progress leads, and we're on a path to progress and still more. And and I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced by that. I, I think that it that we've produced a lot of ugliness. We've we, we've we've trashed our, our beautiful blue planet. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm appalled bias i don't think we're we're at all um going somewhere and i think that we've become cut off very much from uh, the ancients beyond the greeks and romans the egyptians and others um who who didn't have our view and who did live very sophisticated lives in a lot of uh, urban comfort but without the ugliness and poverty and ignorance and terrible things that we sur- surround ourselves and I think that um, there are some very good historical reasons why, why that has happened. Do you, do you want me to explain that bit? Oh, please do, yes. I mean, it's to do with the Romans. And, yeah, I mean, because, because the, what, what my book explores is this massive overview about how civilization came about at the end of sometime after the end of the Ice Age. And there was this, this very uh, clear archetype of a pure form of civilization, if you like, that existed for thousands of years. Egypt was the best example of it. And then various environmental problems happened and Egypt became weakened. And then the Indo-European tribes, like the Greeks and Romans, became more powerful. And around about the end of the Bronze Age, beginning of the Iron Age, around 1200 BC, that's when these Indo-European tribes, the Romans in particular, Kind of went on the move and became even more destructive than before and they just they just increased in in power um, a, over time and they adopted them monotheistic religion uh, we call christianity and as a result of that we i think we've been in the dark ages for the last two two thousand or more more years and it's because of those particular tribes um being so powerful and the egyptians just couldn't they couldn't fight them and they their culture just disappeared and that really is is the problem is that we've been cut off from from the knowledge of that and we've we've been encouraged to think of the egyptians as primitive and backward and worshiping animals and and we should dismiss them but actually they were far more advanced than we are and that, that's really what I'm trying to say is that we need to reconnect with with, and try and understand them better because we could live a better life as a result.
1: Absolutely right. And I think uh, a lot of the knowledge that we know of the Egyptians comes from the Greeks. And in my opinion, maybe even the Greeks did not really understand everything about the Egyptian culture. For example, alchemy, we can talk about this later, but you, you call some of the places in the Western world soulless places because people, they're trying to escape from, from reality in ways like consumerism, religious extremism, or a dependency on alcohol and drugs. And Obviously, they're not happier nor, nor healthier. Why, how do you think people in the past used to escape? What was their, their way of, of, uh, of uh, releasing the pressure, if you will?
0: Well, I think people in the past, particularly people who came from more of the Egyptian culture, they had a completely different philosophy. They could see that we were all in interconnected. If you like, um, na- Native Americans ha- had this view. They understood mm-hmm. that we were of the earth and part of the earth, and that we were very interconnected, and that if you, um, they often use words like web. The Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, the um, Roman Emperor, who I think was a bit of an exception to the whole Roman thing, he understood this, and I have a beautiful quote um, from him in the book where he talks about everything being part of a a web, and and they understood that if you affect one bit of the web, then there's a reaction in, in another bit of the web. And that's a very that's a very beautiful way of looking at things. I I think it's also to do with how brains are wired up. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with um, the the TED talks on the internet and particularly yeah, sure. the Jill Nolte Taylor talk. You know where she talks about having a stroke and and the impact of that. And I think as a result of that, she realised that if you were in your right brain, that you you saw these connections and it's. Really, because of the Romans and others, there were so much more in our left brains that we don't see these connections. So there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of philosophical, psychological differences between the the two cultures. Really, you know, it's about a difference in philosophy in terms of. The Romans had an idea that the end justified the means. And we still think like that. We still think it's okay to build the new motorway because the environmental destruction will be justified by the economic prosperity that that brings. That's the problem with that way of thinking. Whereas, Whereas the ancient way, the Egyptian way, the Native American way, the Stoic way, is to say how you do something is as important as why you do it. Because the means are ends as well, and that's the that's a philosophical change that really we need to we need to reconnect with that.
1: I cannot agree with you more. And although I don't like to to read from a book, I think it's so important to read certain quotes from your book, especially the one that you just mentioned from from uh, uh, Native American Chief Seattle, who said in 1854, "Folks, listen to this quote: yes. This we know." The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. All things are connected like the blood that unites us. All man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. So only now, more than 150 years later, are we finding out the truth of this wise observation. Everything is interconnected, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's such a beautiful way of putting it, and that's why the Native Americans had such problems selling land to the American government because they didn't actually own it. They hadn't didn't have a concept of uh, ownership in in a legal sense, and it it really puts the case very very well. And if you turn to the end of the book, you will see the um, the other quote from Marcus Aurelius, which I think. It, and he, he's, he made his statements, I can't remember exact dates when he was around, but say it was, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago, he, he was making very similar comments. I think he was around, I can't remember, anyway, the dates are in, in the book. But, um, you know, I, I think it's very important to know, to know these things that people have been thinking along those lines.
1: And this is why we try to explore a lot of the native ways, not only in the United States, but Australia and even Europe. And there's one quote that I always find fascinating because we have turned into a society of, of reactive people instead of, instead of being proactive. And for example, only when the last tree has died and the last river been poisoned and the last fish being caught will we realize that we cannot eat money. Why is it so difficult to, to understand this concept, Lucy?
0: I don't know. It's it's just extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, I mean, I have nothing against big business. Um, I wouldn't have been able to write my book if I, you know, hadn't been supported financially and, and so forth. I have nothing against the profit motive. But it's as if some people who run these, these very big mining companies or whoever it is, as if in their heads they think there's some beautiful bit of pristine world that they can escape to and the, and the destruction that they've caused doesn't, doesn't matter. And I, I, don't, I don't understand how anybody – to me to be – if you have money and you're wealthy, it's a privilege to be privileged. And that gives you more responsibilities, more more duties to look after people, employ people, and look after the land that, that that you live on. So I don't really understand quite where their mentality comes from. I mean, I explain it in the book as being a continuation of that whole Roman Roman way of thinking. And I just think that these people they must have been brutalized from the start because they have no sen- they have no sensitivity, they have no awareness. It's they're like Soldiers aren't they going in into battle because soldiers cannot afford to have pity for their for their enemy So they're they're like that in 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 a business sense and and so they become very environmentally destructive
1: And in a way lucy I relate to you because I used to be in the corporate world now I'm a businessman So I understand the motivation for, for profit at the same time why isn't there sure. the the ethics in the, just to put it in a general way, ethics in the corporation per se? It seems that because is an entity all, of, all on its own, the people who are behind it, in many of these corporations, don't seem to, to think. To know that ethics should be part of it and they should also be liable. And I don't mean to, to inject the BP oil spill, for example, here in, in, in what happened last year, but when you look at the damages that were caused, all of a sudden, just because you are a corporation, it seems that the li- limited liability concept all of a sudden excludes you from being responsible. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think this is in a way, if you like, the, the failure of cities. Because I think the problem with cities is that they cocoon people. Um, people who who work in offices, who live in urban environments, are so disconnected from from the real world that I think that they they just see it as a kind of like a dream going on out there. They they don't actually follow through the consequences of of their decisions. So I I. I mean, this is, I think, part of the problem of modern cities is that they're very, very successful at their interconnectedness within themselves, but they don't interconnect with the rest of the landscape, with the rest of the the environment. So I, I just think that people have got kind of suckered into a kind of virtual reality thing. And after all, what is the point of consumerism? Is it just to sit in front of a big screen and be fed intravenous food? Right. And various other substances? Is that what we're all supposed to be alive for? I mean, how how sad is that?
1: I remember years ago in, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, I read a book by an author with the name of Faith Popcorn. Yes, folks, that's, that's her real last name. And it talks about how in the next century, the 21st, we would see... People living in cocoons, people working from home, not leaving their houses. The social interaction would become cyber interconnectedness of social networking. This was said just when the internet got started and a lot of people couldn't comprehend that this could be it. Because right now you have people more connected than any other time in history, but it's all via computers. But where's the, the connection, the physical connection to people and to the planet?
0: Yeah, exactly. It, it is it is a worrying thing, isn't it? You know, people living out vicarious lives of, of, of a virtual reality nature. And in, in my book, I write about people having their decisions taken away from them because they, they don't even choose the ready meal that they they've bought. They don't choose the ingredients. Someone else has made that decision. And then the stuff that's piped through to them on the channels, well, they can choose which channel, but the stuff itself is decided by somebody else. You know, all their decisions start to be taken, uh, taken away from them. And that's, that's very, very sad, really. And really, at the end of the day, we are here to enjoy and to enhance our beautiful blue planet, to experience the, the beauty of nature and to do it from an urban context is to give it a kind of framework, uh, but a framework that does relate, that does connect. And isn't completely separate, and I think that that's really that's really the point about it is is to see, it, uh, the way I see cities is they should be like the picture frame of a of a beautiful picture, and the picture itself is nature, but you understand the connection between the two. Do you, do you sort of see my kind of sure. image on that? Um, and I think the two are really are really important. You know, it's like having a beautiful Grecian vase in uh, or urn in your garden, and it's of a classical shape. But coming out of it is is a very disorganized plant, because that's the contrast between nature doing mm. its stuff and the classical symmetry of your of your Greek urban um, Greek vase, Greek urn. And it's that paradox, that combination of the two, that that we should be striving for, I think.
1: And you know, when I think of, of ancient civilizations, for example, we tend to, in the Western world, be taught that what happened two year, 2,000 years ago was made by primitive people who were inferior to us, yet they were able to to achieve as much, if not more, than we, we have. The buildings, the extraordinary feats of engineering, the pyramids, the temples in the Middle East, Egypt, and, and South America— some of them are, are remarkable, and we still today, with the technology that we possess, cannot even come close to building them. Why do we continue being arrogant, saying that oh, those primitive people they did not progress as we have today?
0: Well, I think part of the problem is is that no very few serious engineers ever really look at look at them properly. I mean, you know, most engineers are too busy engaged on building big modern projects. So they don't use their engineering skills to analyze them, and the other problem is, is it's almost too fantastical to believe that something that weighs fifty tons or something mm-hmm. could be moved huge distances, five hundred miles, as in the case of the of the the granite slabs in in Egypt right. um, from the quarry in Aswan. Aswan mm-hmm. And people can't they can't comprehend that because. After all, where is the big machinery? There's no evidence of any big machinery because they didn't use big machinery to to achieve that kind of thing. So it's totally beyond our experience. And in, in my view, although the Romans did move, occasionally move big stones, they didn't really um, move a lot. And I don't think they knew the techniques for moving the big stones. And so our knowledge of how to move stuff really rests with them. And they had to invent the pulley and so forth. And they were the ultimate enslaved society and they still used tiny bricks to build a lot of their very dramatic buildings. If you go to Rome that's what you'll see. You'll see smaller dressed stone and loads, hundreds and thousands of tiny bricks. And if it was that easy to move big blocks of stone with lots of slaves, I'm sure the Romans would have done it, but they didn't.
1: See, and it's all over that area. You go to to Lebanon to Baalbek and you see the the the, the huge yeah. multi-ton stones there and the question yeah. that prevails is how did they cut the stone and how did they move the stone and furthermore exactly. what happened to the knowledge
0: yes well i think i think um i think the problem with the with the knowledge is that um the 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 people who knew the secrets really didn't want the wrong people to get hold of it So the knowledge had to be protected which so it's not very surprising that we don't we don't know um, I mean the Romans were quite powerful enough without knowing these these secrets So I think that they they did kind of go on Underground, I mean there were certain there were certain techniques to do with knowing how to access the knowledge which um Remained and are probably still around today if one knows what they are, which to do with shamanism and to do with alchemy. But I don't think it was such a bad thing that those secrets um, disappeared. To be honest, because they were meant for peaceful purposes, the the use of these big blocks. I mean, a friend of mine he said to me, "Well, when the Romans invaded Egypt, why didn't the Egyptians just drop big stones on them if they knew?" (laughs) Right. Well, the answer to that is because when the Romans invaded Egypt, the Egyptians had virtually all gone, and the Egyptians had become Greek. Mm. They had become the Ptolemies, and I don't think they knew the the answers. I don't think they were privy to the secrets, Um, you know, and that's why it, it makes a lot of sense to me that we don't actually fully know. We're having to rediscover it ourselves.
1: It really makes you wonder if, during the the burning of the Library of Alexandria, if that knowledge was not really burnt, and most of the most important aspects were probably moved somewhere else, perhaps in the, somewhere under the Vatican vaults.
0: I don't. I don't necessarily believe that. No, I think. I think what happened was. I think that the the secrets. I think went up the trade routes. I think they went up to Syria. Mm. I think they went to Harran. In northern Syria, and I think they were kept alive by um, alchemists there. That's what I think happened to the secrets. And I think that people like Isaac Newton and the Knights Templars going back even earlier, made contact with those alchemists, and that's why they knew what they knew. What they I think that that's how Newton discovered quite a lot of what he discovered, for example by making contact with that ancient knowledge through those those roots. I mean, do you want me to to, to, to explain why the Knights Templars and why, they, why I think that was the case? Sure. Well, I think that what makes me very suspicious is um, where you consider um, the role of Bernard of, of Clairvaux, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Bernard of Clairvaux was this um, cleric of the Roman Catholic Church, a a very high, highly positioned person. And he's the one who wrote the ordinances, the the, all the doctrines for, for the Knights Templar. And they were directly answerable to the Pope. So they were protected from the French king. And I think that they came about after the first crusade when um, groups of them discovered that the Arabs who had been in contact with these alchemists in Haran had some interesting knowledge and they wanted to know more and the key the key reason I think this is because St. Bernard of Clairvaux he preached the second crusade at Vezelay, and the second crusade wasn't to Jerusalem it was to this place just south of Haran. And there was no strategic reason for it. It was a place called Sanliufo or Edessa. or had lots of different names. But it was a kind of, in theory, a Christian conclave. And there was no other real reason to go and try and recapture that little bit of land other than the fact that it was so close to Haran, where these alchemists and Sabians and, and such like were. And that that to me reveals so much the the fact that he 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 did that and i think that the knights templars were among those who who managed to rediscover some of this ancient knowledge and they 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 were very successful in many ways um they helped us rediscover geometry for example um but there was only so far they could take it because of the power of the church which was um, hugely ne- negative about about any kind of knowledge that challenged the the authority of the Pope. So I I don't person I mean there may well be things under the um, under the Vatican but or in the Vatican libraries. But I don't personally think that that's the deal breaker. I think that one can discover these things uh, without worrying about what's in the Vatican. To be honest,
1: well, you just think of uh, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's been, yeah. what, 50 years with scholars trying to, to uh, translate them. And the Jesuits, understandably, they're, they seem to be very against releasing a lot of it just because the the life that they have been living for so long could collapse in front of their eyes, don't you think?
0: Well, that's, that's to do with the fact that as far as I could tell, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which cover this period of time, Uh, Around when Jesus is supposed to have been alive Um, There are coins that have been discovered at Qumran next to the Dead Sea where where this community Existed which cover those dates The Dead Sea Scrolls themselves make no mention of him. That's the big problem for them And there's no historical evidence that Jesus existed in that time frame and that's part of the big problem about challenging all of this. And so what the Jesuits have done is to um, uh, put the stories that are in the Dead Sea schools to a much earlier time right. in order to try and avoid this embarrassment. But it's completely arbitrary what they've done. They have no evidence for doing that. And um, and that is a very disturbing thing That that is not the truth. Obviously, they're not going to, want to face the truth because to say that jesus didn't live when they said he did that's deeply deeply disturbing for so many people
1: and what does this mean and i know this may come as a shock to to many especially the believers but could the story may have been fabricated for the roman empire to gain control over their people since they didn't have enough soldiers to control all their all of their territories
0: Well, certainly the Romans had an interest in Christianity from a political point of view, that's certainly true, and that's certainly the role of Constantine in in the 4th century AD when he set up the Council of Nicaea. Mm -hmm. But to go back to the earlier time um, when you had St. Paul and St. Peter and and the other disciples around, I mean, the only way I can explain it, and I do go into some detail about this in, in the book, is that I think that Paul and Peter, had different mentalities, different mindsets. I think Paul had a mindset which was more what we might call Gnostic, in the sense that the Gnostics, and this relates to um, codices that were discovered at Nag Hammadi in Egypt in um, the 4th century AD, much later, the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostics had a view where they were much more interested in what Jesus said rather than historical facts about his life. Whereas I think the St. Peter tradition is a tradition where people want to believe in facts. And so I think that they did invent certain aspects of it. And there is also a view that what they actually did was take the life of John the Baptist and adapt that and take bits of that and turn it into the Jesus story. Um, So you can't rely on these things. They weren't writing pure history. They were really writing religious propaganda. And um, I think one needs to be very aware of that. I mean, for example, the decision to to choose December the 25th Mm -hmm. as the birth date of Jesus was a decision taken by Pope Liberius in the 4th century. So all of us today who trot out the nativity plays and who do all the stuff on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, We're just following a decision of a fourth century, arbitrary decision of a fourth century pope who took the birth date of another deity called Mithras Mm -hmm. and decided to allocate that to Jesus. And yet we we think it's absolutely gospel truth. And that shows you how easily we're fooled. And if you know simple facts like that, you should stick to the truth. You should be willing to challenge and, and take on board. And look, it's much more important to look at the the essence of, of, of Jesus' teachings, of what he's saying, not when he said it or how he said it or where he was, but what he said. It's the philosophy of the Sermon of the Mount or whatever. That's what really matters uh, about the Jesus story. But we continue to get hung up on stations of the cross and, you know, all of that dreadful purgatory stuff and even the whole issue of the of the cross and the doctrine of purgatory, that's all much later. That's second century AD, Oregon, the early church father, who decides to deliberately introduce the doctrine of purgatory so that sinners might taste something bitter. And they didn't want you to know that you could be reincarnated. They didn't want you to know that you could have another another go, another chance. They wanted to think that you only had heaven or hell. And that was their decision. Another human being making an arbitrary decision, not based on, on any evidence of anything. And it's very, I think it's very important for people to know the truth about their history and to know the truth about the, these things because they continue to affect us today. And I think the whole ghastly thing about losing the idea of reincarnation is that we in the West then end up feeling so separated and so guilty and feeling that death is the end. And I think it causes lots of depression and, and a lot of our malaise in the West, whereas the Egyptians didn't have that view. They understood that reincarnation was very much part of the whole life and death cycle that the soul lived on. And I think we should try and Try and understand that again, because whether it's true or not doesn't matter. But if it gives you a different way of looking at life and makes you happier, isn't that going to be a better option than the idea of eternal sin and suffering? I mean, it's so ghastly. Well,
1: this is one of the reasons why you're here on this show called Veritas, because we want the truth. (laughs) I grew up being a a Roman Catholic, and uh, invariably you grow up with fear, and guilt. Yeah. And even to yeah. this day, it's difficult to remove those shackles sometimes because it's so programmed. It's a social right. construct that you have to remove. And that's why I look up yeah. to people like you who, who, who want to help bring the proverbial blinders out of our eyes so that we can see the, yeah. the full picture. But I, I think of the word progress. It seems arrogant to me that when the conquistadors came to America, all of a sudden— by establishing themselves here and and usurping the way of life the native people had before, they call it progress. It seems contradictory to know that they, the native people, cohabitated in harmony with the planet in a sustainable way, and they are just looked upon as primitive people or animals without soul. What's your take on
0: that? Well, this is, of course, all part of that programming that you were talking about and all part of this idea because, because what really happened when, when the Roman Catholic Church really started to get a grip on things, and the Romans were very, very involved in this process, is that, is that they had a problem with knowledge. And the thing with the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, is that they couldn't cope with being challenged. You had to have faith. You had to believe, but you couldn't be challenged in a kind of rational way. And they, they were very specific in the early days of the church about who could become, who could join the church. And they didn't want teachers, and they didn't want actors. They didn't want people who would challenge them. They didn't want philosophers. And they only wanted people who would just absorb and accept. And they created a whole hierarchy about who was able to interpret the truth. And that whole hierarchy went up through the bishops eventually to the Pope. So uh, one single human being was the only person who could interpret the truth. And that is intellectual death. And there have been many books that have written about how the West died intellectually in, in the 4th century A- AD. And it's it, this this is the ultimate outcome of theocracy. This is what happens when... When the priestly caste take over completely of a monotheistic type Mm -hmm. Because if you have monotheism, you could have only one God you have only one Major key person whether it's an ayatollah or whatever it is or Pope whoever Interpreting God that's that's a problem with it with with the older um, religion with a polytheistic way of looking at things you still had a supreme deity But no single, no single temple could claim total control and that was the beauty of it and in many ways when the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten who I think was responsible for starting this whole monotheistic thing sometime in the in the late Bronze Age, I Think that what he did he closed down all the temples and he had it so that you could only uh, worship or venerate the art and the power behind the Sun. I Think he discovered politics at that point Because because what he did was he by by closing down all the other temples he removed that balance where one thing couldn't be played off against another so so he created a point where people were really trying to get at him for power and to become his main priest and his main temple. And that created a lot of competition between the human beings at that level. Whereas with the old system, where they had different temples for different things and they had their different roles, you didn't have that kind of conflict. So that's it's really the human psychological consequences of making these changes. And I think that they are appalling because they lead to tyranny and ignorance. And I think that the world went, did go backwards. The ancients knew that the world was round. They didn't think it was flat. And they knew that the earth went round the sun. They didn't think that the earth was the center of the universe. But it's, we've had to rediscover these very basic facts. And that in itself proves your point about progress. You know, we, we had to go backwards to, to learn things that they already knew.
1: And one question that I've always had is where did the warlike mind, when and where did it come about? Because when you look at the ancient ones, they had all they needed. They had their basic toolkit for survival. They had their reindeer meat, their network of exchanges that stretch vast areas, their cave paintings, etc., which showed that the only times they were shown with weapons is when they were confronting uh, animals, not people. So where did this warlike mind originate
0: that's a very very difficult one to answer um i i mean i i'm not sure i i can really really explain that one to you all 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 i can sense is that these indo-europe european tribes had a different way of thinking a different way of looking at the world and they were probably more warlike and i think that um for various reasons particularly after the disaster the global catastrophe at the end of the fourth millennium bc when all the um, tribes and the civilized and the non-civilized went on the move and that's when egypt as we know it starts at that at that date Um, and i think that they had already come into contact with the indo europeans but i think those tribes came closer down um more involved with the with the civilized in, in many ways. Um and maybe maybe it was environmental catastrophes that created this this need to go on the rampage and find food and 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 so forth. Survival. It, yeah survival because particularly with the with the change from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, around the twelve hundred BC, the fall of Troy, after that um, you have this, these appalling um, destructions in the eastern Mediterranean of these peoples called the Sea Peoples, who I think were probably Greek mercenaries. And um, horrific consequences of that were a really unpleasant form of child sacrifice that the um, Jews and the Phoenicians carried out, the, the Moloch. So it's it's very hard to know where that particular i mean these people are now better armed because they'd found the secret of iron in that earlier time the bronze age they didn't use iron so they weren't as well armed so they weren't quite as destructive in the same sense i mean that's not to say that the egyptians didn't fight campaigns they did fight campaigns but i think more to protect themselves rather than anything um so i don't know that's a really that's a really difficult one to answer
1: and you know it seems that in the western world we'll look at the and we mentioned this earlier on we'll look at the greco-roman empire as the source of knowledge but really really don't look beyond or should i say before them for answers like for instance the egyptians why is it that not as much information as there should be is available
0: well there's several reasons for that one is that well for start, we stopped being able to read hieroglyphs um, after the 4th century AD. We didn't, until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone right. in the 19th century, we, which was our kind of code breaker, because the Rosetta Stone had Greek, um, um, hieratic Egyptian and hieroglyphs on it, so we could use that to, to translate that um so we couldn't we couldn't actually uh, read what they'd written for another thing the egyptians had a like a lot of the ancient city cultures had a very strong tradition of memorizing knowledge um what the priests taught in secret and so forth they they taught their pupils to to memorize there was a very the, the ancients were very especially people like the druids and people like that were very keen on the art of memory it was a very important part of the way they they transmitted um, knowledge, and um, and I think what's really interesting is that our Roman alphabet came out was a development that came out of um, not these educated priests, but the needs of traders, because it's a it's a, um, a, a twist on on the Phoenician al- alphabet, the Roman alphabet, and the Phoenicians were the big merchants, they were the the, the big traders. So our whole route to knowledge of a written form doesn't come through um, the understanding of symbols and educated, deep philosophical stuff. It comes through the needs of contracts and knowing that what you've actually given your money for is exactly what you've asked for, which I think is very, I think that's very interesting, isn't it? That that um, that kind of development has, has resulted in, in our our written language. Um, Where's the philosophical um side the cune- cuneiform and the hieroglyphs the cuneiform of, of Mesopotamia of the very ancients before the Egyptians and the hieroglyphs they haven 't affected our language at all they haven 't come into our language so I think that's that's a pretty key key reason through different
1: well, sources in a way it 's good that the printing press came along because it it allows to transfer all that knowledge in, in vast ways. But also, in a way, if you look at today, people depend so much in their computers to, to store everything, calculators. Where's the brain? In that time, you know, oratory and verbal communication, as you say, they develop memory because that was what they could use to transfer knowledge to others. The Native Americans, the elders, that's how they transfer knowledge to their to their offspring. Don't you think that this dependency in a way may be counterproductive also?
0: Well, Mel, I don't know if you want me to talk um, at this point about um, sh- shamanism and al- alchemy because that was another technique, if you think about it, for accessing knowledge Yes. Um, These out-of-body. Shall I? Shall I go into some detail? Sure.
1: We have five minutes before we take our break, but sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and do it in five. Um, Well, because as as I understand it, the ancient um, priests they knew how to do an out-of-body shamanic ritual, and they were trained for this. They were initiated into this, and the, the pharaoh was the ultimate um he i think this was his lifelong um, aim and um and what they did is is they knew how to send their soul their spirit on a on a journey to communicate with with the ancestors in the same way that shaman still do in siberia or peru or or, or whatever um, and my thinking is is that Um, The Greeks who we learn about what the Egyptians up to misunderstood and they confused a process with an outcome and part of the process in the Egyptian ritual was I think the use of of Modified form of gold where gold is subjected possibly to a higher electrical charge Mm. and turned into a white powder and this is the philosopher's stone and that um, the Greeks somehow knew about that process, but what they didn't know was what the powder was used for. And the powder was used for for the outer body experience. And I think that what the Egyptians were doing was astral planing to the fixed stars. And these fixed stars in Egyptian were called the Kemi. And I think that the Greeks associated these fixed stars' name. With the process, with the means of getting there, and that's why we think alchemy is just about some form of change of gold.
1: <laughs> exactly. But
0: I think it's actually, I think it's actually about the astral planning to the imperishable northern stars, the chemi. and that's the bit that we that they didn't understand, they didn't know. So we we've inherited a misinterpretation. That's one of my my. Um, uh, views of, of, of the whole thing
1: and you know since you mentioned alchemy and, and I'll get your answer on the other side but this is always a question that I've had alchemy, one of those words that sounds interesting but it's hardly discussed why has alchemy always been shrouded in mystery what is the truth about alchemy and What is And was it religion that dismissed it because it belonged to the pagan world uh, of magical superstition but I'll get your answer on the other side tell us how to get this great book approaching chaos
0: Well, it's available on uh, Amazon in the US and Amazon in the UK, and I have a website, www.approachingchaos.co.uk. And so anybody who wants to get hold of it, that's probably the the best way.
1: And when we come back, folks, we have so much more to talk about. And like I said, I really enjoyed the book, and I'm going to have to read it again because there is so much information there. And knowing of Lucy's background on the fact that she's discovering all of this in the last few years. It's just amazing. But don't go anywhere. We have a lot more to talk about with Lucy Wyatt. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. You're listening to The Veritas Show.